Hey, good morning, everybody. So glad you can join us together this morning where we are celebrating one of the greatest days in the church calendar, the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? I'm obviously going to preach on that today, so I'm going to do that um, for the express purpose that the church can marvel again at such a wonderful truth and that we could leave here worshiping as worshipers, looking at the splendor of God's holiness seen most brightly in his death and resurrection. I want to do that today. I hope that uh, uh, we can participate in that. But I also want to give those who maybe have never thought seriously about Jesus, maybe up until this point, a chance to respond. And so I will, at, uh, at the end of this message, be asking you to make a decision to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, but first, I just wanted to read from one of the gospel writers about a scene at the tomb uh, that is so famous. Uh, this is Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read the first 12 verses. This is after Jesus has died. He has been laid in the tomb, and it's the following day. It says this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who uh, told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. I can't help read, can't help but read the first verse without wondering where their minds were on that day. You have to remember that within a day or two prior, everything was going for them. They had plans and dreams and hopes that were all centered on a single person, Jesus Christ. They had huge aspirations of the kingdom of God as he promised. They saw wild things happen. They heard crazy things happen. He was the mysterious, popular rabbi. And the promise of the kingdom was about to come upon them. And all of their hopes, all of their dreams dashed the foot of a bloody cross. And in one night, it was over. You know, usually after a very traumatic event, it doesn't really hit you, we say, until the next day. I sometimes wonder if, if it hit Mary as she was carrying her jar of spices to the tomb. If it was right there that she fully realized, wow, this, this thing is over, I guess. 
There are two basic uses for spices in burial, at least in the ancient understanding. One was, you know, an act of either reverence or respect, a, an act of homage for the dead. You're just covering them in, in spices, and it acts in that way. It's a respectful uh, gesture. But the other, the other one was simply practical. Spices in that day were simply used to mask the stench of death, to cover the stench of death, to cover it over, make it a little bit more bearable. I have a two-and-a-half-year-old daughter. Her name's Abby. And yesterday morning, she was eating a bowl of cereal, and she knocks the bowl of cereal uh, off onto the floor, spills it everywhere. She looks around if, uh, see if anyone notices. No one did, apparently. She takes a, a cardboard box, and she puts it over the puddle of milk. <laughs> of course, Brianna and I both saw, and Brianna uh, spoke out and was like, you know, you, you could just take a rag and clean it up. I mean, putting a box over it isn't going to do anything. It's still going to be there. Covering the problem won't get rid of the problem. Covering the stench of death won't make it any more bearable. Isn't that the age-old question that people have been asking? In the ancient world and even in the contemporary modern world, people have been asking, how do we deal with the problem of death? We might have our whole lives figured out, but we all know. Death comes knocking. We don't know what to do about that, though we try. In Jesus' day and age, it would have been the Greek philosophers asking that question. They would have said, all you have to do is find your rightful place in the universe, and once you do that, you will achieve harmony with the universe, and in that way, you can transcend death. Secular humanists would come along on the heels of the Enlightenment, and they would say, that is silly. What you need to do is discover how the universe works, and through scientific progress, then you can gain knowledge, and through that knowledge, you can better yourself, and once you better yourself, then you can find meaning, and meaning is what transcends this life. Postmoderns would come around a little bit uh, later and say, that is the silliest thing we've ever heard. There's no meaning to life. Just live your life to the fullest. Just get as much as you can out of it. And in that way, you will find at least some significance. We've been asking this type of question since day one. One author, Ernest Best, put it this way. He said, that's why even the good things that we do in this life are simply a reflex of the terror of death. Even the good behaviors we have, the good acts of kindness, the good things that we do, all of it is, is this at least a subconscious reaction to our fear of death. You may say, well, I'm not afraid of death. I'm 21. Or maybe I'm 85, but I'm not, I don't live my life paranoid that I'm going to get hit by a bus tomorrow. I don't have a fear of death. And yet we live our lives every minute of the day obsessed with hopefully preparing us for the next life to transcend what we see. We use words like meaning and significance and acceptance and fulfillment, words that transcend our lives. We try to fill in order to achieve that. Try to fill our lives with every imaginable thing, hoping that it will satisfy the drought in our souls. I also have a nine-month-old son. His name's Jude. He's in that stage of life where he's just eating everything, just sticking everything in his mouth. Doesn't matter what it is. 
a banana into my mouth. A banana that's been on the floor for two days into my mouth. A toy into my mouth. Something I found on the carpet into my mouth. Abby's toy into my mouth. Abby into my mouth. <laughs> we recently took him to the beach a couple of weeks ago. It was the first time he's ever been to the beach and we set him, just plopped him right down on the sand. He grabbed a big old handful of wet sand and guess what he did? Into my mouth. <laughs> And you would think after the first time, he would get, you know, he would see that that is undesirable and he'd stop doing it. But he reaches down with his left hand and grabs another clump of sand into my mouth. And all of a sudden, he begins to do this. Just, he's all of a sudden just double fisting sand into his mouth, eating it and eating it. Pretty soon, he's dry heaving. His body is rejecting the sand, but he cannot stop stuffing sand into his mouth. You ever feel that way? (laughs) You ever feel like your innermost being is emaciated and hungry for something more, but you simply cannot stop stuffing sand into your soul? The result of that kind of a life, just trying to find meaning and significance for, for some of you is left you racked with guilt and condemnation and emptiness, maybe shame. Because you've spent your entire life trying to justify yourself, justify your reason for existing. And yet something's wrong. You don't feel justified. You might feel justified in front of your coworkers, maybe your peers, maybe your girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, Grandma, who always loves you. But you have this this itching feeling in the back of your mind that if you were to stand before a holy God in the splendor of his holiness, you would be standing empty-handed. No amount of spices or sand can cover that up. I just love the first words that come out of the mouths of the angels on the scene in the tomb. They say, why do you seek the living among the dead? In other words, you're looking in the wrong place. Why are you still looking for life among dead things? You're looking in the wrong place. The tomb is not where you're going to find it. Hopelessness, the shame that we suffer, the emptiness that we go through, the loneliness that plagues us, our brokenness, our powerlessness, our sense of losing control, our despair, our anger, our rage, our depression, our hurt, our pain, our anxiety, whatever it is and whatever you want to call it, you and I know those things run deep. Those are symptoms of death and sin. You can't just fix things like that by stuffing sand into your mouth. Whatever sand is and whatever it looks like to you, whether it be success or money, sex, drugs, relationships, indifference, it doesn't work. No, death itself must be defeated. Death itself must be laid back in its grave. That's why he is risen are the three most powerful words ever spoken to the human race. Because in them we are being told somebody pulled it off. Somebody beat death in its own front yard, left it in the grave along with sin and suffering that comes with it. 
as the Apostle Peter would say, God raised Christ up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by it. You listen to that? Death can't even handle Jesus. No one has ever, up until this point, ever offered to die for you, have they? Sure, maybe people have offered solutions to your problems. Maybe people have been even as outlandish as to give you solutions for death. And the problems that come along with it, your stress and your anxiety and your worry and your guilt and your shame, how has that worked? No one has ever predicted and pulled off their own death and resurrection, though. No one has ever said, I have the power over death, and I am going to die and raise myself three days later, pulling it off in front of the public. And he did that for love. He loves you so much. To go to the ends of the earth and into the grave for your soul, he loves you so much. Not even death could stop your Lord and Messiah from coming after you. And yet it wasn't just for love. He rose from the dead to make a bold statement. For those of you asking, what, is, what are the implications of the resurrection on my life? Why should I care? Well, here's why you should care. It means that if Jesus rose from the dead, it means that he has power over death once and for all. Hebrews chapter two tells us that he himself likewise partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You hear that? In other words, Jesus destroyed the power of death so that you would not have to be afraid of it and so you would not have to live your life trying to justify your reason for existing. That's why we're also told in Romans chapter 4, 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That means he also has power over guilt, power over condemnation, power over shame. All the effects of death and sin. And they say, well, people are still dying all around me. That's true. And even though the effects of death are still around, the salient point of the resurrection is that it has effectively been defanged. It no longer has a sting. And it will only be a matter of time before Jesus Christ, as he promised, will return for his bride, return for his people. And in that time, he promises to completely abolish death in all of its forms. Wipe away every tear, dry every eye, remove all forms of suffering, eradicate evil, and bring his people into glory. But in the meantime, we don't have to be afraid. We can sing with the Apostle Paul, oh death, where is your sting? You almost hear the Apostle Paul just taunting death. But if Jesus has the power over death, you can be sure that he also has the power over life. And power over life that is falling apart. He has a power over life that has been bruised. He has power over life that has been discouraged because it didn't work out the way that you thought. He has power over lives that have been shattered by the circumstances of life. He has power over life that is disillusioned 
life that is empty, life that feels hopeless, life that feels like a dead end, life that lacks meaning, life that is beat up, abused, left for dead. He has power over life that is filled with shame, guilt, and sorrow. Christ came so that you could have his life and to have it more abundantly. As the Apostle Paul would later say, as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. See, God didn't send his son to die for your sins just so you could be forgiven, but so that you could experience a different way of life. Brothers and sisters, that does not come through the Greek philosophers. It doesn't come through the secular humanists. It doesn't come through the religious professionals. It doesn't come through Chris Lazo. It doesn't come through your church attendance or your religious resume or the good things that you have done or the bad things that you think you haven't done. It comes from nothing that comes from you. This comes not from believing in your own life, but by believing in his life and the power thereof. In a few minutes, I want to give you a chance to respond to that power. But perhaps you would say, you know, I read Newsweek, and I'm kind of a History Channel buff, and I read, uh, watch some of those shows, and you know, I watch that, that particular series it's, that said, you know, the resurrection of Jesus is just a myth. It's just mythology. It's for kids. Now, there are resurrection mythologies out there. Osiris. Dionysus, Adonis, Addis, Mithras, there's a lot. But there is a profound difference between a myth, which is accepted as such, and an historically transmitted eyewitness testimony, which is what the Gospels profess to be. I could talk endlessly with you on the reliability of the Gospels, how these are some of the most well-attested documents we have in all of ancient history. I could spend hours telling you about how the New Testament is an accurate, reliable source of history, even from a secular historian's viewpoint. I could talk for a long time about how the eyewitness testimony surrounding the resurrection is worthy of standing up to scrutiny in a court of law. How the evidence supporting the resurrection is so wealthy and abundant that it's caused even the preeminent scholar N.T. Wright to fill nearly 800 pages documenting the evidence of this event in history. I could talk about all of those things because years ago I went searching for it myself. Years ago I hit a wall. Years ago, I hit a wall of despair, and it was me who said, I feel the weight of my own sin and guilt, and something is wrong within me, and I don't know what it is, but I'm not prepared to die. I'm not even prepared to live. And I began searching, and I came across the story of Jesus Christ's resurrection, and it is an outlandish claim, is it not? This guy dies and raises up from the dead three days later. And I begin to examine the evidence and examine the sources and examine history, scrutinizing with a critical mind. And sooner or later, I came to a place where I like to call the happy chills. I could not escape what was facing me. I realized that day, this, this is true. 
this actually happened. Jesus actually rose from the dead. What am I gonna do about that? I could talk for hours with you about all of that evidence because I went through it myself, but I won't. I'm not gonna talk about it this morning because scientific evidence isn't what changes people's hearts. And it won't change yours. It'll help. It'll take down some barriers maybe. But if you wanted to know all of that stuff, there is a wealth of that information waiting for you to read. If you really wanted to know if it was true or not, there's so much stuff to study and to research. We don't disbelieve in Jesus because of a lack of evidence. There's too much evidence. We disbelieve in Jesus because of the seriousness of his claims upon us if it's true. And this same Jesus who died and rose again also professed and proved himself to be a king and the son of God. And with that comes worship. And he called upon all who take him seriously to forsake and deny everything in order to follow him. That's a big claim. He's calling for all of you, every part of you, every ounce. Some of you might say, well, yeah, why would I want to do that? I like my life. Why would I want to give it up? Well, you won't. Chances are you won't until you come to a place in your life where you can see how out of control you truly are, how deeply mired in sin you have been, and how desperate you are for something more. It's the desperation that drives people to Jesus. Like Peter. (laughs) I love Peter. Poor guy. Peter was that guy who just wanted so badly to be somebody, but messed up at every turn, right? Won't take you too long to read through the Gospels before you discover that uh, Peter rebuked Jesus. He lacked faith in Jesus. He spoke when he should have shut up. He shut up when he should have spoken. He misunderstood Jesus' entire mission. He fought for position. He refused to serve others. He fell asleep when Jesus needed him the most. He denied Jesus three times before his death. He ran away from the scene of the cross in tears. And even when Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus found him fishing. He went back to his old job. Presumably discouraged, beaten, and ashamed. Perhaps like some of you today. Feel ashamed. Perhaps like you're not worthy to come before God. Asking, where's the good news for me? I'll tell you in the words of Jesus, who said on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see the kingdom. See, the people who know that they need help, the people who know that they don't have enough in themselves to save themselves are generally the ones who end up seeing Jesus as a glorious Messiah. Sure enough, in our text, when the women were frightened and the disciples were skeptical, it was Peter who rose and ran. Can you imagine what was going through his mind? I wonder if he was saying, this is too good to be true. No, Peter, it's true. He rolled into the tomb, saw it empty, looked at the linens, and marveled. 
as everything Jesus ever said began to make sense, and history would soon change rapidly after that. But at this moment, it changed in one person's heart. One person who began to believe all that Jesus said. Why? Because the resurrection changes everything. Peter would go on later to write a letter, and the first thing thing that he would say is what we started our service with. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Brothers and sisters, that very hope offered still remains today for you. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up as we move into a time of worship through singing, but before we do that, I want to offer you the words of Jesus who said in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Those are the words of Jesus. Do you believe this? I want to give you a chance to respond to those words today. Perhaps you're sitting in here this morning and you're, you're feeling the weight of your sin and the despair that comes along with it. Perhaps you're tired of running. Perhaps you've been running so long you're just tired. Perhaps you've been fighting so hard to make your life meaningful and you've been messing it up at every turn. Maybe that has been changing and affecting for the worse all of your relationships. Maybe you've made a big mess. God is in the business of making messes beautiful. And he asks you today, do you believe? I want everyone in the room, if you would, to just bow your heads uh, this morning and close your eyes. No one looking around. This This is a serious moment, right? So I want to treat it with all the seriousness it deserves. Right now, Jesus is asking you, do you believe? Do you believe? I want to give you a chance to respond to the hope that is in Christ. So with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you believe you are indeed a sinner, you need a savior, and in the cross and resurrection you have found it in him, I just want you to do something. I just want to acknowledge that that's you. If you believe and have decided that, can you just look up at me and make eye contact with me? I just want to acknowledge, I see you, I see all of you. See you, brother. See all of you. In the back and in the mezzanine floors, if I can't see you, you might just need to raise your hand. I just want to see you and pray over you. Right on. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that it's by grace that we have been saved. It means it comes not our salvation comes not from anything that we have done or even anything that we have said. It comes from God's gracious action towards us, and we simply believe in that. I believe that with all of my heart. I'm also a firm believer that sometimes responding with action often crystallizes that 
decision that we've made in our heart. There's just something about it when you move to action and you do something about it. It seems to solidify what God is already doing in your heart. And so in a second, I'm actually going to ask you to do something very brave. For all of you that, that believe and want to make that decision for Christ, I'm actually going to ask you in a moment to stand up, to make a public profession of your faith in front of a bunch of people who love you and love Jesus. You might say, well, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. It's too much. Brother, sister, why did you come today? I know you didn't come to waste your own time. I know that you didn't come to go through some more religious motions, to just hop into a church and go through the motions and leave in the same bondage that you came into this place with. I know that God, by his spirit, brought you here for a greater purpose, and that's why you're here. You came for transformation. You came to see your own chains being broken. You came to be filled with abundant life. You came to encounter the living God. My friends, he is here waiting for you. And he will not abandon you. And he will not leave you to the wayside. And he will turn nobody away. And Jesus, who defeated death and the grave, would later go on to say, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Friends, death has been decisively defeated. Jesus has been made present. The kingdom of God has come to bear on the earth today. And all that stands in that way is your decision. So on the count of three, I am going to ask you to make the best decision of your life. And it all changes from there. You're being called into something else. Are you ready? One. Two, three, stand. Do it. Amen. Praise God. Yeah, you guys, who can cheer? Come on. The Spirit of God is able to take what the devil meant for destruction and bring it into life. This counts for people being transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You can go ahead and take a seat. This means that God has not just defeated death in general, but is able to take death in your own life and turn it into life. And this is not a waste. Your Easter Sunday was not a waste. And I wanted you to stand up because I wanted to look into each of your eyes. I wanted to see you. And I wanted to tell you, brother and sister, you are not alone. You are not condemned to shame and guilt. You have not done anything in your past that has shocked God. You have not done anything in your past life. I don't care what you've done. I don't know what you've done. I don't know what your history is. I don't know how you screwed things up. And I don't care. Because if Jesus Christ can defeat death, he can also wash away your sins. And Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, tells us that the one who is holy, that is Jesus, and those who are being made holy, that's you, are of the same family. Welcome to the family. 
He also goes on to say, therefore, he is not ashamed to call you a brother or sister. Friends, God is not ashamed of you. When you are united with Christ, you are brought in and adopted by a loving Savior who has died. He died to get a hold of you. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 13 tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So I just want to end this morning, at least my portion, with a prayer. And I would love it if just everyone in the room, believer, uh, everyone, would just pray this prayer with me as we crystallize what God is already doing in your hearts. Repeat after me. Lord, I am a sinner, but I believe that you are a savior. I believe that you died for my sins. I believe that you rose to give me new life. So I turn from my sin. I receive your love. And I choose to follow you. I ask now for the Holy Spirit to fill my life with power and to help me become the person that you want me to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If that was you and you made a decision this morning to follow after Christ, I just want you to know that you're not alone. There are always, every Sunday, uh, intercessors and people who love to pray. We love to just ask prayer for each other. So if that was you, you can just walk up to one of them. It's not weird. And just ask for prayer. Love to pray for you. If you don't have a Bible, love to give you a Bible, anything of that nature. But we just want you to know you're not alone. And this is not the end. This is the beginning. Right now? Let's enter into the splendor of his holiness and worship a God who saves. Amen.